and welcome to the Emergence Discipleship Podcast. As a church, it's our hope that the proclamation of God's Word on Sundays will turn into the application of God's Word in our daily lives, leading to the transformation of people in our local communities. To that end, we pray that this podcast would serve to further equip you with more insight, background, and context into the themes and topics we study each week. First, as we gather together to worship Jesus, and then as we go to make disciples. Thank you for joining us here today, and let's get started as we dive into this week's discussion. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, Doug and I are going to be diving a little bit deeper on some of the themes that we've seen from this week as we continue studying through Matthew 4. We have our snorkeling gear on. Yeah, we're going real deep this time. Uh, There's a couple of really cool themes that have kind of spilled out of here, Doug. Uh, A a couple of big words, too, kenosis being one of them. I kind of alluded to that with the leader's guide this week. But a couple of really cool things falling out of Matthew 24 and... um, Hopefully we can keep this one under an hour, though. Let's do this thing. <laughs> All right, let's jump into here. So this week we're in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51. Is that correct? Sounds right to me. Yeah, I think so. And right out of the gate, there's a couple things that have kind of fallen out of this. And I think the question everybody's really going to want to to hear us answer for this week is this idea of Jesus not knowing the time that the Lord's prepared, right? And so I alluded to this term in the other podcast where we were talking about kenosis, right? And kenosis, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but kenosis is a is a Greek term that refers to emptying of oneself. Is that accurate? Yeah. The Greek verb kanao just means to empty. Okay. So oftentimes, you know, in, in just as far as theology goes, we refer to this idea that Jesus, I guess, is emptying himself of, of what? Power, of knowledge, of both. Um, you know, we can dive into that a little bit, but let's just, let's actually read the text here and and get to the, um, kind of the core of this idea, right? So in verse 36, it says, but concerning that day and hour, uh, Matthew 24, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. And so this is interesting, Doug, is, are there things that Jesus does not know? Or, you know, are, are there things that he specifically, um, you know, withheld from himself or that the father's withheld from the son? Like, how are we actually supposed to understand that there are things that Jesus doesn't know? You know, if he's, we believe that Jesus is God, right? And God's omniscient. Mm-hmm. So if Jesus is omniscient, then how can there be things that, that he doesn't know? Yeah. Well, I think a few different things have been raised there. Um so we'll talk about the concept of emptying, first of all. Okay. And this comes to us through, and by the way, a lot of this, for those of you who are leaders listening to this, a lot of this can be found in detail in your notes um, that are supplied with this week's community study guide. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, at any rate, uh, the, the idea of Christ emptying himself uh, comes to us from Philippians 2, uh, verses, say, 7 and following, although the passage um, begins earlier where essentially Paul is saying you need to uh, count others more important than yourselves just like Christ did. And then he talks about how, how Christ humbled himself when he came here. Um, and in verse 7, he talks about, it says Christ that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then, uh, of course, um, Paul goes on to describe how God exalted him as a result of his humiliation. Mm. So, uh, uh, Doug, real quick. So I'm reading along with you. I'm in the ESV. And mm-hmm. you said he emptied himself in verse 7. That's I'm, the, yeah. Mine was translated as saying, made himself nothing. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh. 
Which the is ESV says made himself nothing then? Yeah. I wonder if that's an earlier... Um, the ESV has gone through at least one revision, so I wonder that's if that's interesting. Reflects well, it. I mean, I've had this Bible for probably 10 years at least. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, I did some memorization. Okay. I mean, you can, you, can read the, now. Yeah. you can read the Greek anyway, right? So yes. what's the, you know, what's the best way to actually understand uh, the... But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, and uh, But the question there... So, so that emptying, again, is where theologians get this idea of kenosis from, or I should say certain theologians, as a way to explain what happened in the incarnation, particularly the idea that if Jesus is here walking around in in human flesh, there are certain limitations that are upon him that would not be upon him uh, as God, right? Mm. And so how do we understand the way that the incarnation affects Jesus's divinity? Mm. And so the idea here would be that by taking on human flesh, he is emptying himself of certain divine attributes. Uh, notable ones would be things, a uh, very notable one would be omnipresence, right? If we mm. think of the idea that God is in some sense present everywhere, um, clearly Jesus in the flesh is not. Mm. Um and so, is this a, is this a suitable way to explain what's going? Is this is this an accurate way to to explain what Paul was talking about? And if so, is is this does this help us with our verse here in Matthew, which we should note by the way, is something that Jesus like. I appreciate that Ryan didn't dive into this in the sermon mm. because it really isn't part of the point of the text. Mm. Um, he it it in other words, Jesus isn't there explaining to us how to make Christ how to understand Christology. Sure. He's he's or what we believe about God. He's right? simply yeah, he's simply saying, don't try to figure out when this is going to happen. I don't even know when it's going to happen. Hmm. Right. But only the Father. And it, so in other words, it's kind of said in passing, but it is significant. And Mark notes it too. Um and indeed it, that statement was is has been viewed as problematic as 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 a difficult one with our understanding of Jesus. In fact for those of you who have listened on the sessions page to my talk about the uh, text of the New Testament, where we talk about variants within the Greek manuscripts, there are a number of uh, Greek manuscripts that omit that phrase in Matthew chapter twenty-four. Hmm. Uh, the the nor the son, right? It's just, um, because that, and likely that's that's one of the purposeful omissions where that that statement is found to be troubling towards orthodox understanding of Jesus, and so you know there's no telling what scribes are going to do at a certain point, and so some of them decided you know let's just nix that. Huh. Um, but that's another story. Um, that's another. The best trail. manuscript. Yeah, we know that it's in there. It's it's pretty much nobody nobody really doubts it's today that, that it's true. Yeah, it's not it's not uh, it's not doubted. Okay. So um, at any rate, so going to Philippians two seven. All right. So so the idea of Jesus emptying himself of divine attributes, that's probably not the best way to understand things. Um, the first uh, point that I would make is that first off, it does. It does seem to undermine a, uh, an orthodox understanding of Christology, right? That um, uh, the the typical way that the church has understood the deity of Jesus is that he's fully God and fully man, uh, both two complete natures, not 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 confused, but but in the person of Jesus. He has a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. And if he has a fully divine nature, 
saying that he gave up divine attributes, you're you're either beyond the line or skating dangerously close to the line of saying that Jesus ceased to be God when he came to earth. Sure. Okay, because God is in part defined by his attributes. So now that's a little bit of a pie in the sky kind of theology conversation, although it's it's relevant, you know, for those of us who are interested in, in such things. Mm. Um the but the 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 other problem which I think is because you could simply say, well, yeah, but if the Bible teaches that, then so be it. We need to adjust our understanding of Christ. But the problem, the real problem, I think, is that it's it, it's not a very good interpretation of Philippians 2, 7 and following. Because Paul defines what he means by emptying. Note that he never there says he emptied himself. Uh, he never says, like, anything close to the idea that the kenosis theory says, right? He never says that he emptied himself of divine attributes or anything like that, right? Okay. Instead, what does this emptying look like of which Paul says? Uh, taking the form of the ser- of a servant, being born. In-, in fact, the grammar of the verse says that explicitly, right? He emptied himself, there's your verb, and then you have an adverbial bulb an adverbial participle, right, modifying that, taking the form of a servant. So he emptied himself. How did he do that? He took the form of a servant. Okay. And and earlier on, you know, he talks about this idea who, though Jesus was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or probably better, a thing to be held on to at all costs, no matter what, right? Um, but instead took the form of a servant. So he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, um, that's much more in line contextually with what Paul is saying in Philippians 2, rather than in, essentially importing theological concepts that it, I think you have, it's it's pretty obvious Paul is not talking about here. Hmm. So that's why the kenosis theory is probably not a good way to understand this stuff. Okay. So where does that leave us with Matthew 24? Right. So real quick, so if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, Doug, what you're saying is that the kenosis idea, this idea of kenosis is, is somehow that... Jesus is removing him, uh, removing divine power from himself, which, if that was the case, would somehow be making him less God, yes. right? But that's not what's happening. Yes. Jesus is not becoming less God. Right. He's fully God, but he's also becoming fully man, yes. right? And so this idea of emptying himself, you're saying Paul defines for us mm-hmm. that Jesus emptying himself is actually him taking on the form um of a servant, right? Being born in the likeness of men. Okay. So yes. am I with you so far? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So knowing that, then what are we to make of what we're seeing in Matthew 24, 36? So again, we, what we have in Matthew 24, 36 is a passage where Jesus is not specifically teaching about his divinity or anything like that, but the idea that he doesn't know something. So the way that this is typically understood, and I think best understood, is uh, really leaning into this idea that there is there are two natures of Jesus within Jesus. There's a human nature and a divine nature. And if it's hard to wrap our heads around how those two natures can legitimately exist in one being, well, welcome to the fact that you're talking about the incarnation of the Son of God. Okay. Right? All we can say is we need to uphold everything that the scripture teaches us about Jesus, right? And it teaches us that he is fully God and that he is 
the full and you and ideal human being as well hmm. so which is why by the way the new testament will on frequent occasion apply psalm 8 7 to him this idea that you know the what you know the human being for a little while you've made him lower than the angels that kind hmm. of thing right and you read psalm 8 and you're like well that's just talking about all people why is you know, Hebrews applying the or Paul applying this to Jesus. And the idea is because it's saying that Jesus is the ideal man. He's the ideal human being, hmm. not only the ideal, right? Um, son, uh, son um, divine son. So the way that it's, pro the, the way that I understand it is that with respect to his divine nature, Jesus maintains omniscience, but with respect to his human nature, he is, uh, he is limit. He he knows as we know, and a helpful way, as I write in the the notes for the leaders this week to under to think about this is on analogy to omniscience. Okay, Jesus in uh, I'm sorry, omnipotence. That is the idea that Jesus can do anything. Sure. I would add logically possible. Okay, um, and consistent with his nature. So if Jesus, um, uh, so so Jesus as God is also omnipotent, but he's not constantly going around exercising his omnipotence. Mm. Instead, in his human nature, it's his human nature that's kind of visible and apparent to us and functioning in the incarnation mm. uh, as he walks the earth as Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, and, and so he's, he's, He's weak. He's a servant, right? He's mm. he's subject to limitations. He's not going around, you know, making food out of thin air and stuff like that, except when he wants to demonstrate that he can, mm. you know, but there's this is constantly kind of on hold, as it were, in the same way, like when we, like we read in, in Luke 252, that that Jesus, as he grew up, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He increased in wisdom. It's not like Jesus popped out of Mary, like knowing all things that can be known, mm. right? In his human nature, his mind. So, um, so he's subject to those limitations. Now, of course, there are places in the gospel in which it's clear that Jesus has access to supernatural knowledge. Mm. But the idea that Jesus, Jesus's human brain literally knew everything um you know is probably it would 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 compromise the full humanity of Jesus hmm. so you have these things in tension with one another uh, neither one overcoming one another um and it depends on whether we're speaking of him with respect to his humanity or with respect to his divinity the other thing um that i would add to that uh, is that there is also in the scriptures a clear notion of Jesus's subordination to the Father. Right. That the Father, Jesus does what the Father wants him to do, knows as the Father wants him to know. And um, so uh, uh, there's, there's, there's a, not that the Father is in, you know, in an ontological sense, more God than Jesus or anything like that. But there is a sense in which the Son is in submission to the father. And so here you see that as well. Mm. So I think those are the two prongs that I find help, um, uh, really, really, um, get, you know, um, help me get my head around what Jesus is saying here. <laughs> it's funny because, uh, you know, now like exploring this Doug, I'm not sure if I'm, if I, if I have more clarity or more confusion, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, you know, I guess at the end of the day for me, you know, 
when we get to things like this, I, I don't know. Like I hear that, I hear that verse in my head that says these things are too wonderful for me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if on this side of eternity, I can fully comprehend how this works. Yeah. I Not think, that I necessarily I think, need to. I, you know, I but, often, when, when thinking about these things, I, 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 I want to say that I think a more realistic view of God is one in which there are legitimate mysteries. Not not blatant contradictions, right? Like at one part we could say like saying some things about God is incoherent and for that reason, you know, we, we shouldn't, you know, we should reject certain ideas. But there should be part of our understanding of God where we really feel our minds stretched. And um, Paul, I think, expounds this great and really nicely at the end of Romans 11 where he says oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid mm. for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen mm. there's a point at which our theology should lead us to that point mm. To where we're, we're saying, I can't wrap my, my head around this. All I can say, and again, this is, this is why I am a Trinitarian, right? And, mm. and all Orthodox Christians, little o, throughout the centuries are too, because not because we completely understand, wait, his, with respect to his human nature, we say this, with respect to his divine, how is, not because we, we have all those answers, but because we want to say, these things the Bible affirms, and we want to affirm them too. The Bible affirms that Jesus is fully God, mm. that he is, he, that the fullness of deity dwells in him. Mm. And yet, it also says that he grew in wisdom. It also says that he, he possessed a physical form that could be nailed to a cross and mm. die. Right. Uh, it also says that he does not know the day or the hour. Hmm. And you can't deny either one. Hmm. And so you need to have a theology that is able to affirm both. Hmm. It's interesting because like, I think the problems come like you're saying, Doug, is when we, when we make this, this common error of insisting upon understanding, you know, sometimes that like, I don't know how to describe this, but basically there's, I've had a lot of friends that have insisted upon understanding this and try to reason over and over and over again, how these, how, you know, for, for example, the fullness of God and the fullness of man can dwell inside of Jesus and try to logically come out with some solution. And that can lead them down one, one way or another. And, you know, a lot of folks will say, well, you know, he gave up part of his divinity or he wasn't completely fully man. And then all of a sudden, you know, your doctrine, your theology and, and, a, and a healthy doctrine goes right out of the window just because we're trying to wrap our brain around things that God's that God's doing. And, you know, to your point, I, I love what you said that I think a healthy, um, I guess, hermeneutic would, would take me to the place where it, it just says that the ways of God are, are too deep for me to fully comprehend. Yes. You know what I mean? I, I can't, yeah. what I can understand, you know, and just for the sake of clarity, what I can understand are the things that God and the Bible has made very, very clear, which is the gospel. You know what I mean? And yeah. a lot of times every week when I, I love being able to do deep dives like this, because 
at the end of the day, we can try to understand a little bit more about yeah. some of these crazy and intricate things that are falling out off the pages of Scripture, but it always leads us back to the gospel. And if I can speak in a way that might reveal my ignorance about certain things, um, this kind of – the reality as we know it, or at least as we think we know it, um, reflects these kinds of brain twisters – where it's hard to really, we're, when we don't have something that's directly within our experience, we uh, we we find ourselves uh, we yep yep uh, we have a hard time getting our head around it. Yet we have to affirm it anyway because the best data points there. Mm. So I think, for example, like I think think for example the fact that like you know physicists, theoretical physicists, right, mm. debate and have, have different ideas as to how the universe works and is put together, right? Yeah, time, and we're space, talking, continuums. And, and we're talking about trying to understand the one who spoke all this into existence. Mm. But, you know, you talk about, like, theoretical physics, right? you talk about, like, the, the subatomic uh, particles and quantum theory and stuff. There are subatomic particles that exhibit a thing called spin. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept. I've heard of this before, yeah. But this is the idea. So if I have a normal object that I hold, like my wallet here, I spin it and I say, I want to get it, spin it and get it to this original position. How many degrees do I have to spin it? 360. 360. But there are subatomic particles that exhibit spin where you have to turn it 720 degrees to get it back to its initial position. Right. Okay. Or 180 degrees to get it back to its original position. Okay. That makes zero sense <laughs> to my mind that lives in this. And yet you read Hawking's brief history of time. He explains it there and they're still and and, and part, part. I'm not even sure quantum physicists are still explaining it today. Yeah. Um, and these are just things that are just aspects of a reality that that, you know, so I guess I'm just saying like there are. There are more tangible aspects of tangible in quotes aspects of reality that we have a hard time understanding and have to simply say, all right, uh, quantum theory being an example. And I don't make per any pretenses to to really understand quantum physics or anything like that, right? I'm just saying I know that there's weird stuff in there, right? That uh, particles can, uh, uh, you know, uh, be quantum linked and things like that. I'm like, what? It's like um, me trying to explain to you synesthesia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. to me makes perfect sense, but I don't know how to explain what it. What color am I, Alex? You have a couple different colors. It okay. fades in. <laughs> you said, I think you've said orange cream. Spoon. Yeah, orange and yellow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look it up. Okay. So let's, yeah, if let's you're curious, on. look up synesthesia. So all, all I'm saying is that if we have, the, if 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 we know that reality as as we could kind of like get our heads around. Um, you know, in the, like the real smarties among us doing physics and things like that in university, and they're explaining stuff to us that doesn't make sense on a practical. Like, it, how doesn't it make sense to say that God would, you know, probably be in that domain? Yeah, where we there's going to be parts of him that we just can't grasp. Mm. I, I think that's a great point. You know, and as as we call him Lord, as we affirm him Lord yeah. and Savior and Creator, does that not also affirm that there are things that he can do and understand and speak and know that are too much for us? And this to really is grasp? why this is why we practice revealed theology rather than speculative theology. Mm -hmm. This is why the subject of theological or the object of theological inquiry is God's, God's revelation. revelation. It's not his written revelation in particular. It's not, you know, what 
do I think God is like? Sure. You know, because you have no idea. I have no idea what God is like. Mm. You know, I, I'm going to create, you know, and then man created God in his own image. If that's what you want, right. then then go ahead and, and follow speculations, follow sentimentality. But mm. if you want to know what God is really like, follow how he's revealed himself in scripture. We've mm. probably spent enough time on this topic. Perhaps. Okay. All right. Let me move us on to another subject that's popping off these pages here, Doug. So uh, we mentioned last week in specifically in the leader's guide and, you know, jumping into this idea of the second coming in eschatology a little bit, uh, the word that the disciples and Jesus is are, are using to describe his second coming, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just a quick recap. There's, there's kind of two words that exist. There's one that is the normal term used for coming, as in to come and go and everything else. And then there's this other one, uh, Doug, that you said is parousia, which specifically is referring to this arrival or this, this, um, entrance of a new, I, I don't want to say era, but a, a new thing. Like no, this, era is big, fine. Okay, it's, fine. It's a, a new era, era. a new, uh, a big arrival. The, the consummation of God's kingdom on earth, the full. Yeah. Great. So parousia, right? Now, mm-hmm. so last week in the text, um, Jesus was talking way more of all of these magnificent events that were to come. He's using this big prophetic language that we've seen elsewhere in scripture to specifically describe the destruction of the temple. And he's telling the disciples that you will see this in your own lifetime. These things are coming uh, as as yet they've never been. You know what I mean? That they will be as bad as you can imagine. Now he moves in and now he starts actually using this word, this parousia word, right? Uh, in Matthew 24. And so, you know, if I jump into, um, in Philippines, if I jump into Matthew 24, verse 37, right, he starts talking about, you know, the parousia, right? Mm -hmm. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man, parousia, right? The coming of the son of man. Uh, yeah, you're, which verse are you in? Thirty-seven. Yes, uh, and he talks about for his in those days of the flood. You know, you know, men and women were doing certain things, and then they didn't know the flood comes. Right? I'm paraphrasing here. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And so, here we see our word, and then mm-hmm. there's this other thing that you and I wanted to talk about today, right? Which was the idea of rapture, right? Some. Um, you know, are, are sitting here and doing certain things. Some will be taken up one, one taken, one left. And, you know, for anybody that's kind of listening to this, that may have grown up in the church or even have seen things like the left behind series or whatever else it's, is this the rapture is, you know, is obviously it's a source text for it, but is that what Jesus is describing? You know, how should we understand this? And then maybe with that, you know what I mean? For those that have looked into maybe some end times theory and are, are wondering about pre or post tribulation, are those two things the same? Are they connected or? All right. So <laughs> I'm not looking to, uh, uh, to go totally down this rabbit trail right now. So here's what I'll, so first off, let's describe what we mean by a rapture. Sure. Okay. So the rapture is the concept in Christian theology that when Jesus returns, he will remove his people from the earth. Okay? Mm. So, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, uh, back up to 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Okay? And there I think it's safe to say that what he's talking about there is the same kind of thing that he's talking about in Matthew 24, where he says... Um, that uh, that as as the lightning flashes from the uh, east and shines as far as the west, this is verse twenty seven. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is this is the uh, this is the uh, uh, this is the 
the the the place the and there he says the parousia of the son of man sure not regular coming of the son of man right again the confusing language uh if you're a note taker in your bible parousia in matthew 24 occurs in verses 20 uh 27 37 and 39 um but anyway so that's so that's i think what's going on here the second coming and then uh, Paul goes on to say, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, which is interesting, right? And that's because, 1 Thessalonians. Yeah. Paul. And it's not, Paul doesn't say, therefore, argue with one another or speculate with on these things. But <laughs> you're, these are supposed, supposed to be an encouraging thing. Sure. But it's a little difficult to know what he means by okay. this. Um, and there are various theories. Essentially, so... Either it means that Jesus is going to take us out of the world the world to be with him, mm-hmm. okay? After which, let me make very clear, the ultimate Christian hope is not to live as disembodied spirits in, quote-unquote, heaven. Mm-hmm. There is an intermediate state, a place where those who are dead in Christ now are, are with the Lord, but the ultimate hope is resurrection from the dead. As Paul says in uh, uh, the end of uh, Philippians 3, that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That sure. kind of thing. First, uh, First Corinthians 15 kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so, but uh, but the, the, the question is, uh, the, those who debate over this passage will say, is it, does it mean that Jesus is taking us out of the world to go and live somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Or is this, some have suggested, akin to um, a victorious Roman general or so coming to a city after having won a battle where the inhabitants of the city go out to meet him and welcome them to their city? Okay. So in other words, the idea would be that the saints or those, those who are in Christ, right, would welcome Jesus to this world to come and rule with him. Mm-hmm. And so is it Jesus is it our uh, is it about Jesus's coming or about us going, I suppose you could say. Okay. That's where the debate is and we're not looking to weigh in on that here. So sure. sorry about that. Yeah. Um <laughs> I am inclined to the former view to the idea that we are being removed in this. But um uh the um but I if anybody wants that, feel free to email me further about that if you'd like. Mm. But the um, uh, so and then the, of course the question when we're talking about like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Essentially, what the idea is is that in a certain understanding of end times stuff, a certain understanding of eschatology, there will be a seven-year tribulation, which is either a literal seven years or a figurative seven years. Right. Um, uh, of of tribulation in this world, and uh, so for those who do believe in a literal future tribulation, the question becomes: the question is, does this happen before the tribulation, or after, or in the middle of it, or after? Meaning the rapture. Meaning the rapture. Right. Yes. So, if a seven year tribulation is coming, yes, are the Christians on the earth? Are they taken up to be with Jesus? Yeah. Is it after this or and, before this? And for my money, so number one. I'm not convinced that there will be a future seven-year tribulation distinct from the rest of history. Uh, but I'm not – I'm willing to be persuaded otherwise. Mm-hmm. But if I did believe that, I would say I'm not sure when the rapture is supposed to happen because this text does not tell us that. Sure. 
It doesn't place it anywhere in relation to a tribulation. All right. So, Doug, so you know, both of us are kind of... Bring it back to Matthew. Yeah. So both of us right <laughs> now, like we're trying to dance a little bit around this, right? Because yeah. eschatology in and of itself is a much, much longer conversation. Yes. Because yes. we could have an hour-long conversation on each individual yeah. variation of a view of how the end times comes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to pull us back to Matthew here for, you know, for a moment, it's like this, it tends to be a source text where people talk a lot about the rapture, right? Yeah. But but the point at hand, right? And and perhaps the question that's arising out of this is like, okay, um, you know, one will be taken and one will be left, right? So that verses 40 and and 41. Yeah. What does that mean? So, yeah. So most commentators that I'm aware of, uh, regardless of their of their position on the rapture, do not think that this is that Jesus is describing a rapture of the church here. And the, the reason being is that the ones who are, say, not ready for the Lord's return, or the what right, the, the goats, the, the those who are judged at Jesus's parousia at his second coming, right? Mm. Uh, when it talks about Noah, are those who are swept away. It describes them as being as being uh, swept away in the days of Noah. Right. Um, and they seem to be chorus to correspond to the ones in the field or at the mill who are taken. So being taken here does not seem to be what hap does not appear to be what happens to those who are in Christ. Being left is interesting. And that brings us to the fact that this is a parable. Okay. Mm. This is, and with parables, you have to be very careful. Like, what details are we supposed to latch onto, and what are just part of the story? What are used to illustrate the point, and what is the point? Mm. So, is Jesus teaching us here about the fate? About is he giving us details about the fate of those who are in him and those who are not, or is he simply saying it's going to be unexpected? Some are going to be caught caught off guard, and it will be final and this right Mm. and i would just say yeah i i think that it's i think that he's not giving details about it any more than than uh that people are going to be cut in pieces in verse 51 Mm. or shut literally outside a door in the next Mm. parable the parable about the the virgins right um those are not literal descriptions of what will happen that's not to say that there's not going to be judgment or that judgment does you know uh, is not going to be terrifying, um, but it's just that like it's hard to draw from those details of the parables. And that's that, this is also important for the sermon that's coming up this Sunday because it's going to be the parable of the wedding feast, mm. um, not the parable the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to return for for right. feast. Um, there, right? You have the the wise version ver, versions virgins. Um, are, when they're when they're asked by the by the foolish versions, hey, can I get some of your oil? They say no, essentially no. Go get yeah. your own, right? They weren't now, prepared. That's These not, prepared. Now that These is not. not a Christian attitude. Sure, right? But Jesus isn't teaching us about what kind of. He's not saying be like them in their attitude towards sharing oil, mm. towards sharing. He's saying be like them in the fact that they were ready, that they were cautious and ready. Now, and you have to be careful what parts of parables you say are teaching us something and what is just part of the story to get the message across. So that's another point that I wanted to bring up. Cause I think for a lot of people too, 
Um, we can struggle when we come to the categories that scripture offers us, right? You know, a lot of times we talk about this, you know, as, as far as the scripture actually, um, giving us something that we should specifically follow as they're giving something that's descriptive, right? So we say prescriptive or descriptive, uh, for example. And so there are other categories throughout scripture. Like if you just take a look at the books of the Bible, you could, you could qualify some of them of saying these are historical or these are prophecies or these are, these are, these are issues of genre, right? Right, genre. Yeah. So in this case, Doug, it sounds like what you're saying is that parables are a genre. It is a it is a teaching tool and one that Jesus employs to to teach us certain things. Yes. And that we should be careful within those what we take out as prescriptive. Yeah. For example, you know, if I had a very poor hermeneutic, I could go to this and say, Oh, so you know, if I have enough and I feel prepared for Jesus' coming, then I should not share any of that with you. No, that would be poor understanding. Right, that, 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 a poor the, in, interpretation of what Jesus that is really teaching. That it's my stinginess that God commends. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So we, we should be careful in that. I think for a lot of others too, and maybe you can comment on this, Doug, is, is this idea that, you know, does Jesus speak in hyperbole? Mm-hmm. Does he exaggerate? Because if these things are not literal, then how should we understand them? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because if he's exaggerating... First of all, is he? Yeah. Can he speak in hyperbole? And why don't you comment on that? Because it has to do with parables too. I think. Well, I think the answer is yes. Like the Bible, like uh, can speak in hyperbole, hmm. but the tricky uh, and then Jesus included, of course, one of the big like fifty dollar questions in Matthew twenty four is, you know, when we talk about the section that we've identified as the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, when he says that there. Um, uh, there will be such great tribulation in those days, verse 21, as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Mm. Does he mean that literally, or is he just saying it's going to be really bad? Right. It's And frankly, it's hard to tell. Mm. It depends. What you, the fact of, one of the frustrating, but also I think fun facts about biblical interpretation, and really any kind of interpretation of literature is that it's not a hard science. Hmm. There are some things we can say for sure. And there are some things we could say, yes, it's teaching this. And there's other things we could say, no, it's not teaching that. But then there are other things where it's like, you know, I'm not sure. Hmm. And to say that you're sure is itself a form of uh, misinterpretation, we could say. Sure. Or at least mis, you know, uh, you to overstate the degree to which we can be sure of certain things in biblical interpretation. Mm. But I, I wouldn't really describe what Jesus is doing in this passage as hyperbole. Sure. I would describe it more as parabolic speaking. Okay. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's all, all kinds of things. And, and, and not everyone's going to agree with it. Sure. Uh, I mean, at, at least I think it suffices to understand that there are, categories of how the Bible teaches us things like Proverbs is an example of that. Yeah, you know but, what I mean? Well, Proverbs is, a, but we've got great examples here. Sure. An, an example, cause I, this is fresh in my head. Cause I, we were just, Ryan and I were just looking at the passage for next week, Sure. but the parable of the virgins, right? Mm-hmm. Now there are things in that parable that it's not, it are probably not meant to teach us anything, mm. but I'm not sure that I could make a airtight case that they're not. Okay. So, for example, they come out with uh, lamps, which are probably more like torches, right? Okay. And Jesus has told us, let your light shine before others. Okay. Right? Could it be that the lamps are meant to signal, are telling me 
that what the, the way that I'm supposed to be ready is by letting my light shine before others. Interesting. Now, I think in principle, I would say that's true. Jesus, that is a way, that is part of what it means to be, because that's obeying Jesus. Right. But I'm not sure that that's what the lamp means in yeah. that parable. Is that necessarily uh, the think, crux yeah, of what he's teaching? I don't know if I buy it. Yeah, it's like, and, you know, if you were like, well, prove that to me, I'm not sure that I could. It's just that, like, as I said, um, mm. some there are some things of interpretation that are crystal clear. There are others that are that are not. Mm. Um, and there's there's and there's all kinds of gradations in between. Sure. Yeah. All right. So there's two more things here, Doug, uh, from the passage this week that have kind of popped up. And one of those that you pointed out was the idea that we reign with Christ, right? Mm-hmm. That we get to reign with Jesus. Do you want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah. So this is. Um, this is like a, a very, very um, important aspect of uh, of our hope. Okay, one of the things uh, I've been thinking a lot about Ephesians chapter one, and in there, uh, Paul has a prayer that he says he he says for the Ephesians, and he says one of the things he prays for them is that they might know the hope to which he has called us. Okay, and so I think having a good understanding of what the actual our actual hope is is an important thing for a Christian, and um, one aspect of of this of of one dimension of Christian hope that I think is present in this passage that we should just keep in mind is the idea that um, that part of our reward, part of our of of being God's children is um, described, and again, this is one of those interpretive things where it's like, oh, you know, is this a detail of the parable or not? But I think uh, for several reasons, I I would say that it probably is uh, something uh, that we should take away from it. But the idea that the wise servant, the faithful and wise servant, um, in verse 47 of Matthew 24, um, it says that his master will set him over all his possessions. This idea that part of the reward for being faithful is not only being there when Jesus reigns, but reigning with him. Hmm. um, All who are in Christ who bear his image are going to share in what is his. Hmm. And that's an extraordinary mind-blowing thing when I think about the fact that this is talking about me Hmm. and you, you know, and like – um, but nevertheless, and, and a, str- a passage, one of the passages where where we see something like this, and I list a bunch of them. Uh, but an interesting passage here, right, is is in Romans eight uh, verses uh, uh, verses seventeen. Verse seventeen, it says that you know we're children of God, and if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, which is great in itself. God Himself is our inheritance, and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. But fellow heirs with Christ. So that which Christ has a right to, because we are in him, we also have a right to. Hmm. Right? And that's 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 an amazing thing. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, 16.22 is another... Um, uh, I'm sorry, I think it should be 6.22 rather. But this is the passage where it talks about, do you not know that we will judge um, the angels. Hmm. Um, 
No, crazy. sorry, it's definitely six. It's on verse 22. It's, uh, blah, 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 blah. where is it? Um, it's in 1 Corinthians 6. Yeah, th uh, 3. Yeah, 3. So I put the reference in wrong, but yeah, that, that happens sometimes. So 1 Corinthians 6, <laughs> three. 6 3. Yeah. Okay, sure. But I know 2 Timothy 2.12 is, is correct. So I always, when I don't look it up before the podcast, before the recording, I'm, I always start like, <laughs> and I don't know the reference off the top of my head. Like I'm always like crossing my fingers as I'm turning to it. Like <laughs> um, Another, and I'm not going to sure. belabor the point much more. I'm looking, but, at, I'm but, looking at 2 Timothy So two. what does that uh, say? It says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Yeah. And just this other beautiful, this beautiful idea of us reigning with Christ. Uh, Revelation has several things where it talks about the saints reigning with him. And so that's just, you know, I think a beautiful thing that we should just, just mm. keep in mind that that's part of our destiny. It's not just to be spectators in the kingdom of mm. God. And then around the corner too, we have the parable of the tenants coming. Which mm. I know, uh, yes. it's probably my favorite parable in all yeah. of scripture. Oh, but, yeah. You know, he, in the same thing, similar thing, right? Yeah, the master yeah. trusts us with his possessions. And for those that are faithful with those, he gives to them more, you know, yeah. what I mean, even more responsibility, right. even, even more to reign. I think my favorite verse in that passage, though, is when he says, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Enter into the joy of your master. Yes. Like, that's so exciting yeah, to me. Yeah, the yeah. idea that, like, we will, like, we will get to share in the joy that Jesus has. Like, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, I, I really look forward to that. called the joy. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Last, last concept here, Doug, that I wanted to cover before we mm. end our podcast here today, uh, which is this interesting little idea that the master is somehow delayed, right? So I'm in, uh, in verses 48 to 51, as you have here in the, in the leader's notes, um, in verse 48, it's the wicked servant is reasoning that his master is delayed. Yeah. Right. And that's why he slacks off or well, that's why he beats his fellow servants. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But you know, so this idea that somehow God's delayed, mm -hmm. yeah, like what, like what? Well, you get, <laughs> and, and you get this again in this passage that we're going to be talking about this week again, uh, the, of the, of the virgins, right? They, sure. they fall asleep because the, the, the groom is, is delayed. And, the the idea is just like I thought he was coming. He's taking longer than I thought, and mm. so you know what? You, you put it off, thinking it's going to take a long time, or doubt whether it's ever going to happen at all. I mean, it goes with this concept too. Like everyone in their own time thinks that we're going to be the generation where Jesus comes back. Yeah, certainly things are bad enough now. Right. Can't get any worse. And actually, there's probably something of a of a tension in there because we should live prepared for Jesus to come back now, like yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in the same sense, it's like. We shouldn't, if he doesn't come back tomorrow, we shouldn't just assume, well, he's not coming or mm -hmm. he missed it or he, he didn't catch the train. You know yeah. what I mean? Somehow God's late or delayed. The, re the reason we, we need to be ready is not because we know when he's returning, but because we know he will return like yeah. a thief in the night. And granted, I could get hit by a bus today too. Sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Yeah. You know, we talked yeah. about that in our, in the community group discussion yeah. guide as well. It's important to, I think, not just think that like the only way that this, that, that thing that you need to be ready for is the second coming, but yeah. And I just, I bring this up because I think that, uh, that this, it's been 2000 years, mm. you know, and some people and, you know, it, it can cause people to wonder, you know, like, and, and to not really take seriously what he's saying here. I know I've, reasoned thus many times mm. um you know justified my own sin thinking i don't need to be 
worried about my master's return because what are the odds? There's 365 yeah. days in a year. How many I've hours got in more a day? Time to deal with it. I, you know, been, I can... yeah, and 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 that kind of attitude is exactly what he's warning against, both here and in the parable of the virgins. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think we need to take very seriously what Second Peter says in chapter three, verses eight through ten, which I think would be a good place to close, probably. Yeah. Um, but he said, yeah. So I want to real quick in our community group. One of the questions I asked, you know. In, in the group's discussion this week was actually like, if Jesus did come back tomorrow, you know, would you be overjoyed at his coming mm-hmm. or, or would there be some hesitation ah, there? Yeah. Would you be embarrassed? Would you be worried? Would you be concerned? Would you have something else in your mind? And if so, that might signal you a little bit that there are some things in your life and your walk with Jesus that you might want to focus on. You might want to pray about. And our community group met uh, last night mm-hmm. and uh, we sat down and we were talking about that. And probably the biggest thing that came up in the community group is mm-hmm. everyone's kids. A lot of, a lot of the folks in, yeah. in my group have newborns, very, mm-hmm. very new, uh, young kids. And, uh, and for their sake, there's almost this like hesitation. It's like, I, I, I desperately want my kids to know Jesus, you know what I mean? Before that time. Yeah. And this was the verse that, you know, I kind of brought up there. It's like, God's not delayed. You know what I mean? Let me read the verse that you offered us here, Doug. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so I love this verse because it's saying both truths. Number one, God's not delayed. You know, he didn't miss the train. Like this is all of God's timing. This is, this is God's intention that we should have this opportunity right here, right now with the gifts, with the time that we have, with everything that we have available to us as God's given them to us to, to, accomplish the great commission Mm -hmm. to love Jesus, to love people, to see the gospel go forward to the ends of the nation, to, to take these opportune moments with our kids, with our families, to be able to love them well, as Jesus instructs us. Right. Right. But do not count on that because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Jesus will come. It will be like a thief in the night, which you commented on here. And this is probably the craziest thing that I've ever, I've ever thought is that, you know, speaking back to the point on hyperbole is like, or lack thereof, Mm -hmm. you know, but parabolic language is that Jesus is comparing himself to a thief. Yeah. I, that never crossed my mind before. Yeah. It was just like, which we, we can't <laughs> yeah. walk away from this by saying, Oh, Jesus is a thief. He's not like a you thief know? in the sense that he steals stuff. He's in a thief. He's like a thief in the sense that he's unexpected. Exactly. When his coming will be unexpected. That's how parables work. Right. Yeah. Which is why we should be careful how we interpret scripture. Mm-hmm. It, like before anything, you know, we talk about a, observation, interpretation, application, right? When we, when the first read is that observation, what is the Bible actually saying? But when it comes time to interpret one question we should ask, what, what is this that's being described? And if that is a parable and what we're reading is a parable, then we should gain, we should glean from it its main point. And we should be careful that we don't accidentally compare Jesus to a thief in the wrong way, but rather see the point that he's making and saying that it will be that suddenly. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Doug, thank you for your time, thank you. man. Thank Thanks you for, for uh, encouraging us to jump back into these. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, for everybody listening, you know, this is helpful to you. I know uh, some of the deeper dives can be quite deep. Um, we're trying to keep them uh, 
as truncated as we can, but uh, Doug, thank you so much for uh, just doing uh, so much of the heavy lifting here. Thanks for checking us out. For the commentary. Yep. All right, guys, look forward to seeing you next time.